I am one of those lucky people that has lived in four very different cities throughout my life. I was born in a small town in upstate New York that I remember was almost like a forest, really hilly tons of snow. From there I moved to Mumbai, which is one of the biggest, most populous cities in the world, one of the most densest cities in the world. I've lived in London for decades. You know, one of the most international cities in the world with a huge, deep history. I also had a short stint in Dubai, which, in contrast to London, is a new city which is kind of coming up before our eyes. About 80% of our population will be living in cities in the decades to come. So cities clearly have an extraordinarily important role to play in the future of our planet. Thinking about the world we want to create is a place where everyone feels like they have a choice to live the way they want to live. I was really curious to speak to experts to understand what a city could look like if we started from scratch, what a city should look like if we've got an existing city, you know, what, what can we do to it to improve it? Creating a dream city is easy. You know, working out how to transform our existing places is so much harder. And I'm thinking about that not only in terms of, of course, the climate crisis, net zero sustainability, but also from the perspective of the people that live in that city, with all the inequalities that can come with it. I've always been interested in the impact the state can make on places, because I believe that well-equipped, the state has the opportunity to take a much longer-term view in impacting places. I'm Roma Agrawal an engineer, author, broadcaster, and your host for this new series of Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. We need to be 10 times faster, more efficient, and use 10 times less than we, we have across the globe, by the way. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm absolutely thrilled to have two brilliant people here to talk about the future of cities. I've got Jonathan Smales and I've got Pooja Agrawal. So Jonathan, do you mind just giving me a quick introduction and telling me about you and your work? Yeah, thanks, Roma. I'm CEO of a company called Human Nature. We're a sustainable developer, very ambitious. We think that the current model for planning and design and development is broken in relation to the multiple challenges. In fact, we don't even say challenges anymore. We say crises, don't we, and emergencies. So we think a new model is needed and we're putting our money where our mouth is uh, by bringing forward plans for major new developments. I've been a sustainability person slash environmentalist for 40 years. I used to be Managing Director of Greenpeace UK, and I've been working in the built environment ever since 1989. Thank you. It sounds like you've done an incredible range of work, and I'm sure we'll be talking loads about that in a moment. Um, Pooja, can you do the same for me, please? Hi, Rama. Thanks for having me. So I'm Pooja Akrawal. 
also known as uh, Rima Agrawal's younger sister. <laughs> I just thought we'd put it up there, up front. So I'm an architect by background and have worked for a number of years in the private practice, but then made a shift into working at city government at the GLA. I've always been interested in the impact the state can make on places because I believe that well-equipped, the state has the opportunity to take a much longer-term view in impacting places. And on that note, I co-founded a social enterprise called Public Practice, and our mission is to improve the quality, equality and sustainability of places. But also to say I've also co-founded another organisation called Sound Advice, which looks around racial and spatial equality. So I think there's things there that overlap as well in terms of talking about sustainable places. I wanted to start off with quite a broad question, and that is what kind of world is it that we are trying to create? And I want to understand specifically what role the city has in achieving that goal. So perhaps, Pooja, if we can start with you, please. So that's a really interesting, quite a big question. And I guess you can look at it from a multiple different angles. Thinking about the world we want to create is a place where everyone feels like they have a choice to live the way they want to live. And that can be about having access to really lovely open spaces and green spaces, to having the right to be able to be housed. And I think often we go into this aspect of what's needed in terms of bare minimum. And I think it's really important we don't forget the importance of places also bringing joy and play and all of those different elements. So I think that's what we would like to get to. In terms of cities, I think it's a really important conversation because by 2050, 80% of the world's population are going to be living in cities. A huge focus of this is in countries like in India, where we're from, but also cities in Africa. So we're fundamentally having to really think about this rapid urbanization that we're going to be seeing in the next few years. I love the idea of choice and I love the idea of joy and aiming for something above the bare minimum of what we need to kind of just live or just to survive. So I'm definitely going to hold on to those two thoughts. Jonathan, what, what are your views on you know the world we're trying to create and the role of the cities in that goal? Well, firstly, I love the question, uh, actually. I think it's not a question that we ask ourselves enough. I think we just sort of plunge into planning policies at city level and local authority level and in local plans. We don't start with, with that aspiration, that ambition. And I think that's the root of a lot of problems, actually, in, in everything from city planning to development planning. I think the industry just sort of rolls forward with something that has fine words in it, but doesn't really have that soulfulness or that real grip. And therefore, on things like, you know, sustainability, climate change, the, the regeneration of nature, social cohesion, diversity, openness, we sort of throw the words out there, but we haven't spent enough time unpacking them. And for instance, who, you know, who, who even thinks about a city? Often we don't really have that idea of a place as an organism with all sorts of factors acting on it. It's like, who, who owns the city? Who's it for? And although I don't want to be gloomy, but let's be real here. Let's, let's just acknowledge that the climate crisis and indeed the crisis in nature 
are un unlike anything our species has dealt with before. So actually, in terms of what kind of world we want to live in, the first thing to do is we've got to reverse climate change. We've got to take carbon out of the atmosphere because any development that happens in cities has embodied carbon in it. And therefore, we're adding to a burden that's already hugely too high. And so when we think about that future world, the, 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 the very basics are that we have to reverse climate change. And, and that's not easy, by the way. That, that requires a fundamental rethink about all aspects of the city for particularly transport, walkable neighborhoods, social inclusion. You can't actually create a climate safe world which is divided because people just won't come together to make the decisions. Some people just don't care because they're already super privileged and they don't want to change. Other people are excluded, see it as an agenda that's not for them because, you know, basically they've got to put food on the table. They've got to pay their rent. They just don't have the mental space or the agency to deal with it. So let's fix the basics. And, and if and when we've done that, let's weave in the sort of joyfulness, the qualitative experience. And for me, those two agendas go really well together because clean air, green space, the ability to cycle everywhere, healthy buildings, rent controls for affordability, long-term mortgages for affordability, new models of shared ownership, long-term rent that give people security. These things are all a part of what's necessary to create an environment in which everyone can flourish. So the world I want to create is a safe one first, which is huge. It's just not to be underestimated the scale of change in our, in our physical environment that's needed and in our behaviors. And then secondly, one which enables everyone to flourish and the conscious design of places, not accepting how they are, that enables those two agendas to be fulfilled. I mean, it's so fascinating and obviously such a huge, huge question. And I'm really glad that people like Jonathan and Pooja are involved in trying to address the questions that we're looking at. Could you tell me perhaps if you would start from scratch with a city, which I realize is quite um, a unique proposition, but there are places in the world where you can do that. Pooja, where would you start from if you basically had the magic wand and could design a city from scratch, what would that feel like for the people living there? I think it would start with what people want and need and understanding, I suppose, the context within which you're working for. I don't think you ever start completely from scratch because there's always something there. There's always a history of a community, but there's always a history of the landscape and the context you're building in. So that's what I think is really interesting and exciting and makes me really passionate about what I do is that every place is totally different. So even if you're starting from scratch, it's about learning and adapting and responding to that particular place. So that might be a bit of a cop-out in terms of an answer, <laughs> but I think it's working with the frameworks and structures that exist. So yeah, cop-outs are allowed completely, but what about if I asked you that question to do with a very historical city such as London? You know, what, what are the things that you, maybe like two or three top points that you think need to be focused on when you're dealing with a city like London who has that incredibly rich history and, you know, layers of structure and engineering that you kind of unearth as you go down. 
The first thing is really around housing. I think it's so important that people can live safely and have that right to be able to feel like they belong somewhere and that belonging comes from having a safe place to live and inhabit. I also think I see housing very much as a part of the city. So it's not about housing numbers, but it's thinking about housing, how housing integrates into the larger aspects of the city. So it's to do with open spaces, it's to do with mixed users, community centres, how that is, how that connects to your closest high street, for example. So when I talk about housing, I talk about it in its sort of wider sense, how housing connects with the rest of the city. I think the second thing I really care about, I suppose, is public spaces and where people can interact. That's where different people from different backgrounds should be coming together and having that opportunity to understand different backgrounds, different needs and be able to inhabit the city and feel like they belong there. So that would be my second thing. Um, I think affordability of transport and, commun- and connections is the third. Again, maybe perhaps quite obvious, but I think a really important one is that people feel like they can uh, access different parts of their city. A 15-minute neighbourhood is a very... It's on trend. People, lots of people are talking about that. I think that's a really interesting concept that from your home, you have access to most important things that you need within a 15 minute commute on, on um, by walking. But I also think different parts of the city are really important. Different neighborhoods have different identities, as I talked about earlier, and access to like you know theatre and culture all of this should be accessible in different ways and therefore the affordability of connections and transport would be my sort of third point to Mm. think about yeah I think the the different scales at which a city works is such an important thing to consider Jonathan could you tell me a little bit about your work on the phoenix that you're doing in east sussex tell me a bit about how that project was born and what you're trying to achieve with that yeah of course thank you Roma um I think that um Social interaction is almost everything. You know, the human species is essentially a community. In, in a Darwinian model, we, we were told that we were, it was the survival of the fittest, that we were in competition with our neighbors. We've developed an economic system around that ridiculous notion. And, and actually what places are, they're, they're um, media for communities to, to grow stronger. Uh, if we design in the social interaction into the the way that we lay places out with streets and public spaces, and the urban design of a of a place is the critical thing, not so much architecture. The architecture has to fit with the principles of of um, of good urban design, which we've known forever. Really, it was only when Corbusier and a number of modernist planners and architects pulled that model apart that we forgot how to design human places. So the Phoenix is an attempt to bring that back to some fundamental ideas about what works in places. So yeah, it's a, it's a large-scale um, neighborhood development project. It's in Lewis in East Sussex. Um, it's a brownfield site that's been derelict for more than 20 years. It was the site of an iron foundry, a cement works, a paper factory, it was the main employment centre in this beautiful county town. So people think of Lewis and they think of the kind of Georgian high street. They don't think of industry, but these old places were there for a reason and they had um, their own economies. Uh, and so this is 
removing that dereliction, albeit retaining the memory of it and the embodied carbon in some of the beautiful old structures. Um, it's um, on the River Ouse, so it's in a river valley. It floods, which we have to deal with, and it will flood, um, or is at risk of flood, um, to an even greater extent looking ahead, of course. Um, there's a lot of co-housing and co-living uh, envisaged here where people share things like nurseries for children, young children, where you know families with young children have got physical space where they can be safe and play together and be easily supervised, freeing up people to, to do productive work. Community farming through community gardens, a hospitality business for affordable food and canteens, connectivity that Pooja mentioned, um, which is not just a physical thing, but cultural and psychological and economic. Great streets um, and a hierarchy of streets from primary connections to what we in Lewis call Twittons, which are little passages, these beautiful little sort of shortcuts that connect you to primary and secondary streets, public spaces, public squares, greenery everywhere. So we need a certain amount of density in, in our modern places to house people affordably and indeed for you know energy and climate for sure. Um, and, and so when we do that, we have to we have to have good density, not bad density. So for me in cities, that would be seven stories. At the Phoenix here, it's between four and five. And the aim is, you know, to uh, unabashedly, at the risk of sounding bombastic, but is to create a really an example of a of a neighbourhood that is genuinely regenerative for climate, for nature, and for people. Would you tell me a little bit about this idea of, you know, the kind of scale of development that Jonathan's talking about, and then you work more on a planning city level. And I'd really love to hear what that interaction is between developers creating these fantastic neighbourhoods and the policy level work that you're doing. Sure, I think that's a really good question. I think what really strikes me about the work that Jonathan described was the focus around people and human interaction. And I think that is almost broadening the definition of sustainability, where often people narrowly define it as environmental sustainability with a much greater focus on embodied carbon and some of the more technical aspects of it. What I find really interesting about this development in particular is the focus on other aspects of sustainability, which you could define as sort of socioeconomic sustainability around health and well-being and community engagement and so forth. For me, that's about sort of long-term thinking. You know, you started this whole thing by asking us, what do we imagine? What do we want to build towards? And we have unfortunately come to this position where we are very much in this sort of reacting mode rather than having a, a, a starting from this is what we want to create. So for me, I really truly believe that actually if the public sector was well equipped with the right skills, the right capacity, that they are really well placed to empower people, to empower their communities, to represent their communities, but also take a much longer term view and create particular frameworks to make sure that we're thinking 20 years ahead rather than or more, given where we are at the moment, but as opposed to just constantly having quite a piecemeal city where you can imagine different private sector developers come with particular schemes for particular plots rather than thinking about it in a holistic way. So that that's where 
my belief is, that's what drives me. But we know that from the impact of austerity has meant that local authorities' funding has been cut by about 40% in the last sort of 10 years. And particularly, we see the huge impact on planning teams. And I, you know what? This is only going to get worse in the next few years. So, yeah, it's keeping me up at night, I won't lie. But we did a survey last February, March last year, understanding what the biggest barrier around recruitment and skills are from local authorities. And even though funding was a huge issue, it was actually the second issue. The first issue was actually attracting the right people with the right skills to work in local authorities and in the public sector. In a very quick nutshell, what we're doing at public practice is we're attracting multidisciplinary skills that impact places. And we run a job placement scheme where we put them into local authorities, but for but with the sort of ambition that they stay on in local authorities. So it's not that, you know, we open the door for them to test what it's like to work in the public sector. We help them transition from the private sector. And then with the ambition that most of them do continue working in the public sector and take that kind of longer term view and have a bigger impact. The last thing I would just touch on is around the skills needed and that need for multidisciplinary skills. So, I think we should be moving into a world of where we need to think about how our skills transition in different ways. We can't, we are thinking about what the world looks like in 20 years, but we need to be able to think that our, you know, engineers with their technical knowledge are able to influence aspects that we can't quite predict yet. And similarly, people with urban design skills or community engagement skills need to be, we all need to be working together, but also sharing our skills because these problems are holistic. So it's not even just public sector, local authorities having siloed teams. I think architects, engineers, you know, all of us are terrible at our siloed ways of institutional working. And I think that's a whole other conversation, but it's something around how we solve these problems in a much more multidisciplinary way. That's one of the jokes, right, Pooja, that people are like, oh, you're sisters, you're one is an engineer, one is an architect, you should open a practice together. And we always, our response to this is, we've got enough reasons to fight, we don't need <laughs> another one, which kind of, I think, speaks to the underlying sentiment that we're all at odds with each other with these different silos that we live in but Jonathan you wanted to come in on something there I think the slight problem the public sector has is that when it has had power in urban planning it's done some pretty awful things um, and you know from some of the new towns to motorway cities where you know we were trying to drive motorways through the centre of British towns and cities and so you do get this kind of syndrome of the evangelistic bureaucrat who believes that just because they're in the public sector, there's a sort of piety and sanctity that comes with it, that they know what the public good is. So actually, for me, the key is we need a new model of strategic alignment and partnerships around shared values and visions. And that only comes from what Pooja was talking about at the end there for me, um, which is high-level transdisciplinary collaboration where, you know, you bring the best landowners, developers, investors, city leaders, and specialist design and engineering skills and economists together to work out together how we hit the lofty objectives that we have to have for the future of our towns and cities. 
So interestingly, there was a an exercise that Michael Gove and his business advisors ran a couple of years ago in his previous incarnation in DLUC. Actually, I think it was in DEFRA. And the question he asked us all was, you know, how do we house people in the Cambridge Oxford Arc, you know, where a million new homes are said to be needed. And I said, build a city the size of Copenhagen and put that in the middle. Because, and that would only be, by the way, about uh, half of what's needed. It gives you a sense of the scale and the demand in that part of Britain. But in doing that, you could use much less land. You could um, enable the movement through public transport. And he said, what would it be like? Would it be like London in, in the sense that would it have urban villages? And I thought he really hit the nail on the head. I thought, absolutely, you would build a new city, a new town at that scale by knitting together a series of urban villages, just as London historically grew. You think of places like Shepherd's Bush or Islington. You know, these were... Camberwell, these were villages uh, initially that gradually merged together with bigger infrastructure to become... London is incredibly resilient because it has that intrinsic fabric that many planned cities don't have. So I think there's a new model that's needed in the public sector, which is to be far more strategic and far more welcoming of strategic partnerships with business. There's this notion that it's either business or public sector and it's nonsense. And I agree with you. I don't mean to take a sanctimonial position that the public sector knows best and and has not made mistakes, has made a number of mistakes. What I see the opportunity that the public sector has is to be a facilitator because places are so complex and have so many different parties. We're talking about business and the public sector but you know there's also the voices of communities and actually the public sector should be well placed to be able to bring all these multiple different partners together so I completely agree with you it is a new model I'm not saying that we need to go back to where we were in the 60s and 70s but I do think there's a really interesting opportunity for a well-equipped multidisciplinary public sector to be able to facilitate all the different players to create a holistic, equitable city. I think what, what strikes me from this is that there's a bit of a power imbalance at the moment in terms of public sector being you know, stripped of funding, the skills shortages that, you know, Puja, you talk about with respect to public practice, and it feels like that balance perhaps is just a bit off and needs addressing. Jonathan, I find this idea of stitching together different villages to create a city like Copenhagen, as you described, very, very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about what's required from your perspective, from, I guess, from a development perspective to achieve that? And then we can go to Puja from the kind of planning policy perspective. And then you might even hear a couple of my thoughts about the engineering of it, if you're lucky. I think the basic building block of human settlements is the walkable neighbourhood. And the concept is that the average able-bodied person will walk for five minutes, not much more, to meet their everyday needs. Otherwise, they'll cycle. And if they can't cycle because the roads are dangerous, they'll try and uh, catch a bus, but many drive. Something like 85% of car journeys are less than two kilometers, by the way. It's astonishingly inefficient in every respect. And so... A walkable neighborhood would have good streets and public spaces, 
would be about 400 meters radius because that's how far you can walk in five minutes. Um, if it's not completely in a straight line, which it wouldn't always be. And so that's a, that's an urban planning building block. One of the challenges, again, we have with the private public, even if you're successful in bringing community together with public, together with private, is you still need to be clear about what your model is. So the partnership is not enough. You also need to have an intellectual position, properly studied and presented and debated around what the model of development and urban planning and design is. And again, we don't often have that. We have maximized development for maximized profit, which leads to things like some of the worst development around the Olympic Park or in Old Oak or uh, around Canary Wharf, frankly, which is you know neither particularly sustainable, not particularly affordable, and actually in terms of the ground conditions is, is, is really very, very shabby, very poor. And so, yeah, we need those, we need those building blocks. We need those concepts of urban places and why they work better than others. And until we can agree on those, we can't do much else, in my view. I guess when I think about this from an engineering point of view, I, the immediate thoughts that come to me is like understanding what's there, whether that's buildings, you know, bridges, tunnels, what underground infrastructure is there. It's almost like a big mapping exercise to understand what it all means, why it's come up that way, what are the materials that have been historically used in that area and why, and then how can we best select the way forward? So creating interfaces between maybe newer, more modern, kind of more eco-friendly materials with old stuff, that's always quite a big challenge. And then I also think this is quite a practical point, which which maybe speaks to my engineering brain is is a lot of the um, historical stuff that is so tightly guarded and, you know, preserved and, and rightly so in most situations. How do we then interface with that to create a development and a place to live that is appropriate for a carbon, zero carbon world that we want to? And sometimes I feel that there's a little bit of tension there and I find that a very interesting thing to look at. I was going to say, I think that's really well observed. I think you, you know, Jane Jacobs said that creating a dream city is easy. Working out how to transform our existing places is so much harder. And, th and that's really true because you inherit infrastructure. The engineers are really critical in that regard in exactly the way you've described. So we need to map what's already there. But that refurbishment job is, is the top priority, I think. that um, It's not that because planning a new city is easy, we do it well. We don't. We do it actually even worse very often. But um, the priority has got to be refurbishment and therefore, yeah, bring on the engineers for sure. You know, we're talking about the city scale at the moment, but then there's the national scale and then there's a, you know, there's a country scale and then there's multiple country scales and so on. And it's just such a huge topic. And what I'm taking away from this conversation is almost that our definition of sustainability needs discussion to make sure that we're picking up all the different aspects of what that means. So I don't even know if this is possible, but Jonathan, do you think you could tell me in about one sentence what sustainability means to you? Yeah, I can't do it in one sentence, but I'll have a go. <laughs> the, the first thing in sustainability that one has to accept is what we call the environmental imperative. Nothing else is possible without a safe environment. 
At the moment, we have a very dangerous environment where the climate is out of control. Carbon emissions are the highest this year of any year in history, despite all the international conferences and events. And we have to cut carbon emissions, to be clear, by 50% by 2030. So just think about that. You've got um, seven years from January the 1st to cut carbon emissions globally by 50%, um, just to try to stabilize the climate at 1.5 degrees of warming. So just apply that to a city and what you would have to do across every single piece from energy grid, infrastructure, transport, food, embodied carbon. In the UK, we're nowhere near it. And the other part of the environmental imperative is the regeneration of nature. One of the reasons, you know, of COVID and there'll be new disease vectors is because we're getting closer and closer to wild places and wild animals that historically we haven't had contact with as we're eroding their habitat, what's called the sixth great extinction. So, um, but quite apart from the resilience that healthy nature provides for the biosphere, it provides that for, for our species too. So the fundamental building block of sustainability is that environmental imperative. What then is crucial in sustainability is without the social dimension, without greater inclusion and fairness, and the erosion of poverty. Um, so ask the average Somalian whether they feel that it's their responsibility to deal with climate change or the average Pakistani after the, the floods which are probably going to happen again, by the way, as glaciers are melting at unprecedented rates. And, and, unless those nations are supported, you can forget the environmental imperative. It's just there's no chance of it being dealt with. So even if you didn't think that the higher order social purpose of flourishing, a better everyday quality of life, education, equal rights, etc., were very high-order priorities to achieve the environmental imperatives, you'd need to address them. And then the, the third leg of the stool, as it's often described, is, is uh, economics. So we, we, we need a new long-term economic model that um, addresses whole-life costs in, re in revenue, not just capital. Uh, otherwise, we can't have the strategic thinking about how you would design a city. So you put those three things together, and then as John Elkington, a guru in sustainability, says, you've then got to multiply by 10. We need to be 10 times faster, more efficient, and use 10 times less than we, we have across the globe, by the way. And I think it's quite empowering because when we talk about, you know, cutting carbon by 50% and all these seem like such huge, overpowering, scary topics. But then when we talk about neighborhood scales and what we can do on our street or in a five minute walking distance, it feels much more like we are empowered and we can make little jots of difference that hopefully add up. Um, Pooja, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about sound advice before we wrap up. Could you tell me who is being left out of these conversations and what was the purpose of sound advice in addressing that conversation? I think some of the impacts of unsustainable places happen to those people who are most vulnerable and underrepresented in, in decision makers. So if you take the impact of air quality, for example, and COVID, we know 
through, you know, evidence. It's This is not something that I'm making up, that the, the people who are most affected by COVID were people from Black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds. You can link this very much to uh, poverty and um, access to housing, for example, and overcrowding with uh, Black and Asian minority ethnic communities. Or, for example, coming again from that planning perspective, it's always really interesting to see where the social housing is placed in a large development. It, it, it's always going to be by the motorway where you can't open your window while the other properties have, you know, fresh air and light and so forth. So there's something fundamental around the impact decisions have on placemaking on particular communities. So Sound Advice just came from a place of talking about inequality, but from a much more provocative angle, but also a more accessible angle, making it much more playful using music, using songs and lyrics and videos from people who inhabit the city and are often not acknowledged as being an intellectual voice in placemaking. So my colleague Joseph Henry sort of leads it now and is always, there's, we're always sort of looking at lots of different ways of bringing these messages around inequality to spaces and places in, in new informative ways. I again I just I really love it. I love the provocativeness of it. I love all the design of it and it just feels like such a different voice compared to anything that I've come across in my 15 years of being in the industry. The only thing I'd add to this is the role of young people and I, I guess we haven't really touched on this very much in terms of how I'm definitely not a young person anymore but young people are really driven by climate justice and seeing the link, I suppose, to all of the things we do and placemaking is really important from like more young people becoming engineers or planners or architects and placemakers, I think is really important. And one of the things Sound Advice was trying to do was just through its freshness, appeal to a different generation. And I think it sort of surprised us how much it sort of captured people's imagination and I hope encourage them to think about our sectors as places where you can make an impact. Yeah, I, I think it's it's extraordinarily powerful. You know, I found this conversation incredibly interesting. I've found the scale of the conversation really fascinating. So the three things I'm going to take away, one is the long-term thinking. And what really strikes me about that piece is the fact that almost our political structure isn't really created for that long-term thinking. And what does that mean? And how can we improve that? The second one was about partnerships and just working better together, talking to each other. And that's across all the different um, stakeholders that we've talked about today. And then the third one, which will definitely stick with me, is the idea of people and joy and the idea that you should feel happy where you live. You should feel safe as a very basic um, thing. But but the idea of going just a little bit beyond that, and making sure that actually we're happy. I don't think that's something people actually speak about that much um, when discussing these big policy type conversations. So thank you so much for those points. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. I mean, this is why I'm the host. Um, I'm joking. Um, Now that we've solved all the world's problems, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Jonathan and Pooja for joining me this morning to talk about this very large, very, very important topic of what sustainability means, what living as a person, as a human in a future city might look like, might feel like, and everything in between, really. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you too. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
one of the things I've taken away from today's conversation is that designing a city is really only half the story. I mean, there's huge challenges just in that bit. You know, what is a sustainable city? How do we make sure it works for everyone? But the other half of the story is what happens in order to make that a reality. So whether that's the laws that we're working within, the regulations, the local authorities, the politics, the geography, the existing sociology of a place. It is incredibly complex, firstly, to design what you want, but even more so to then make that a reality. So the next time you walk through a city and you think, oh, I really like this bit of it, or I don't like this other bit of it, Start to think about what all the different forces are at play that led to those outcomes for the city. And hopefully you'll, you'll be able to see it through a new pair of eyes. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was hosted by me, Roma Agrawal and featured Jonathan Smales and Pooja Agrawal. It was produced by Jude Shapiro and Bridie Addison-Child. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>